This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Welcome. 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 To Greening the Apocalypse, your weekly hour of ecological solutions and musical noise pollutions. A little bit less this week because Bushy is bushed. He's sick. He's off. Uh, yeah. No. I know. You know what's going to happen, don't you? The um, rock dogs are going to get a mighty lift if they hear that Bushy's oh, sick. All right. He's he's uh, he, he's away on meditative training on a mountain. Super strength training, yeah, he, so he's going to come out, he's going to be faster, harder. He's in a quicker. lotus position on a football, <laughs> yeah. balancing there as we speak. Yeah, so he did a wonderful job dogs. on the intro there, Adam. Oh, you didn't really give him much of a chance. I was, um, this is my monologue. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Go, yeah, go, sorry. Go, go. Please, please. Now you're right to go. Kate, our uh, w- welcome. <laughs> Bringing the Glaswegian kiss oh. approach to community planning. Do you know what that is? Kate Glasgow. Yeah, that's why. Okay. Yeah. Do I maybe the maybe the audience don't? So a Glaswegian kiss is not a lovely, friendly, delightful, smoochy thing. It is in fact a headbutt. <laughs> so I am headbutting, planning in the face. <laughs> I imagine you don't actually tolerate really lengthy community processes. Well, Adam, sometimes <laughs> I have to, and I have been known to <laughs> metaphorically well, apply the Glaswegian. Yes. 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 And <laughs> turning the dials with a smile, or at least a sort of tolerating grimace. Jed McCartney. No, that, that's a smile. <laughs> <laughs> you are, actually. How are you, Jed? Um, I am well. I, um, I survived the, the Giro d'Italia. I had to have a few tears when uh, Orica Greenedge didn't win, came second, and uh, yeah, but no, oh, very exciting. All right, very but you you are more lively than you have been in the yes um, previous shows. Good yeah. because um, we'll keep you mic'd up tonight with Bushy away in training. Now tonight <laughs> we're going to be talking to former dairy farmer, fourth generation dairy farmer who lost the farm back in the nineties during a previous wave of tough times for dairy farmers, but now CEO, or as it said on the website, C-I-E-I-O. <laughs> of the Brisbane-based Food Connect, which is a really interesting social enterprise, which uh, gets thousands and thousands of households their uh, weekly vegetables and other farmed goods through an interesting... Um, uh, low middleman type situation, which is fair to farmers. Robert Pekin is his name, and he'll be on later in the show. We generally start the show, though, with 
a segment we call What Caught My Eye. Jed, I heard you have something for us. Yeah, I, I saw this uh, article in, uh, I think it was in The Guardian during the weekend. It was talking about the launch of the world's largest cruise liner, the Harmony of the Seas in uh, um, Southampton in England. It's a 16-deck floating city. It has 6,700 passengers, 2,100 crew, and uh, a couple of dirty great diesel engines that burn about 66,000 gallons of fuel a day. Um when it's in dock, and, and it's apparently not unusual to have four or five of these things in dock in Southampton, and uh, it actually fails the World Health Organization standards for pollutants, even though there's no manufacturing in the city because of all the ships in port. Oh. Um, you know, the residents can smell the fumes. They're, they're just sitting there idling, are they, to get yeah. the generators on? Yeah, so when they're idling, they're yeah. burning 150 tonnes of fuel a day, just keeping the thing powered oh up. Oh, my God. Um, they put out more particulates than a thousand London buses <laughs> per day. They put out five tons of NOx a day and four hundred and fifty kilograms of fine particles. Um, so these things are, you know, on the same journey, they burn more air pollutants than five million cars travelling the same distance. Have you ever been on one? No, but apparently the industry is booming. Is it? Yeah. Why? Well, cheap oil price. Maybe people would go and retire on them. Yeah, mm. we're living longer, so we can go on cruises. Yeah, maybe. I think it's cheaper to live on a cruise ship than it is to go into a retirement home. But how would you be doing your town planning for Southampton? You know, where people want to live by the docks and have all those views, and then yeah, they're getting asthma and chest infections. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there'll be an argument around the economic impact of oh. all of those people they going em- there. They employ a million people. Full time mm-hmm. equivalent around the world. So the, the, the whole industry does. Yeah, cruise ship industry. So mm. fascinating. Maybe they could just not go anywhere. They could just float. Well, it sounds like that's what they're doing, yeah. aren't they? Just sitting yeah. in the dock. Could they not turn everything off and just, you just float? But there? you're still like, I'm on a boat. Yeah. You don't really have to. Get, <laughs> I mean, they must, but, they're so big. You probably don't even see outdoors most of the time, yeah. right? Maybe they should park them somewhere out at sea. Yeah, just and, float there. And, it's and really take people expensive. Out there in little boats, and mm. then they just sit there. Yeah, there's not a lot of open space or outside space. I think it's really, really pricey to get one with a balcony. Yeah. So you end up in the bowels underneath with no windows or anything. <laughs> oh, sounds dystopian. Yeah. People pay for this. Yeah. Yeah. Although looking at the photo, this thing, um, it looks like a like a cheese rack almost. You know, they've got as much on the outside as they can. So, you know, where they used to sort of have about six decks below the waterline, this looks like it, they've got most of the 16 decks will have some sort of outside view, okay. although I'm sure there's inside cabins as well that see nothing. Hmm. Mm. Environmental disaster and uh, probably fairly bad holiday. Yeah. <laughs> what do you got for us, Kate? Um, I have an article that was posted on... The Urban Happiness Facebook group, which is a hotbed of urban planning discussions. Um, So this one's called, Is Your Neighbourhood Making You Depressed? Urban Planning Can Influence Your Health. And this guy called Colin Ellard is a cognitive neuroscience professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And he he studies how urban design affects health. 
So, I mean, we all know that green space makes us feel happy, but he's done some actual studies where he wires people up with devices that measure stress levels and their states of psychological arousal. Um, and heart rate and brain waves and body temperature and all these different things and it gets these people to walk around various different types of neighbourhoods so there might be neighbourhoods that have kind of big flat facade commercial buildings with not really a lot of activity, not a lot of articulation so very plain colours plain facades, not a lot of vegetation mm. and people don't feel happy they feel kind of, they feel sad and bored and they don't like it. Sounds like Glasgow. No, Adam. <laughs> Glasgow is very, very beautiful and very textural and complex and delicious. <laughs> and there are some areas of bland architecture, as there are in every city, but Glasgow has many beautiful <laughs> beautiful Victorian buildings. The Goebbels. And there's a lot that Melbourne could learn from Glasgow planning. All right, all right. Perimeter, wonderful perimeter, sandstone, six-storey blocks, really, really good medium-density development. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> Le- less of that. <laughs> less of that. So he <laughs> then it- talks about... So that those low, type of low-complexity environments produce boredom. However, when people walk around more complex environments, so more natural things to look at, like trees and vegetation and more articulation and building facades so smaller building frontages lots of things going on lots of doorways and Mm. little stores and lots of things to look at then people become happier and Mm. they want to walk more and uh yeah more complexity breeds more happiness and if you think about what nature looks like you couldn't really get more complex than the formation of a tree or the formation, like the patterns in nature mm. are really, really complex and the colour and texture and everything, in fact, leads us to feel happy. Yeah. So it's not just about the sense of like smelling the air and all of the things that we know about nature that makes us really happy, but it's actually that visual complexity as well. Yeah. Is, is that why all the new buildings down near where I work in Carlton are all very colourful? <laughs> is that their attempt at this? Or? Well, it might be. Yeah. There'll be some neighbourhood character thing going on there where you know, the mm. guidelines will be articulate the facade and then you end up with colourful, strange, who knows. Mm. Who knows? It's funny, do it's, you feel happy looking at them though? Uh, they're, they're interesting. You actually do look at them and you look at the patterns and you look at... Yeah, what they're trying to do with the colour and that sort of thing instead of the the bland ones you just ignore. Yeah, you just so, ignore them. You yeah. don't feel safe when there's no active, uh, no windows, no doors. You kind of no. end up feeling like nobody knows you're there. Mm. So the kind of absolute kind of counter example of what you're talking about is like car dominated landscapes mm. with with uh, big cheaply built buildings with uh, no detail work on them Mm. and you know like your big Costco um, warehouse or something you don't really feel life um, brimming within when you look at it you feel no life yeah and funnily enough it's like affluence creates those kind of landscapes and you go to I mean it's not the we couldn't afford to make better ones but the fact that we can afford to live further apart and build these huge buildings means that we actually make this kind of alienating landscape. Yeah, although those places tend to be where the land values are lower. Mm, that's know, true too. Yeah, I do know what you mean. Yeah. Because we can afford to spread ourselves out, mm. although you might argue that because we can't afford to buy houses 
in a middle or inner ring suburb, you end up in the outer suburbs because the housing is cheaper. Yeah, which is... Which is way further apart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I spent the part of the weekend in Wyndham this weekend and... Which is the council area west? West. Yep. It's west, yeah, on the way out towards um, Geelong. And as doing community consultation, driving around trying to find people. Hmm. But it was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> They're but, rabbit warrens, those places. Yeah. And you mean you were trying to just find people in the street randomly? Trying to find people in the street, oh. yes. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's people in the supermarkets and the shopping centres and the train stations and probably in the houses, but mm. not on the street because it's really difficult to walk anywhere because yeah. everything's really far apart, so you tend to drive. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I went to um, in Mumbai to the this, this squatted slum areas. 60% of people live in those areas and it is, I mean, there might have been the odd rat. Not not really that bad, actually. Uh, but it's the it's the actual... It's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Without anything living, there's no room for plants, but all the details really tight mm. and people and, and I wonder actually it's like the that kind of Parisian kind of vibe only compressed. I wonder if there's like a counter balance to being to having low complexity and boredom because I've been to Mumbai too and got completely overwhelmed by it. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a middle ground of... Oh, well, that was the best thing about these bits, though. There's no cars or anything. It's because it's so small, you can't even get motorbikes through some of the streets. So, like, proper human scale. Yeah, proper human scale. Uh, well, we don't have plants and things around around us right now to stimulate our... Uh, what did you call it? Our, uh, Complexity receiver brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, anyway, I was... I was, um, what caught my eye this week, it's pretty lightweight, but I was actually just trying to figure out what the difference is between cocoa and cacao. Is it not just like the, the way that you I say thought, it? I thought it might have been. Oh. Well, it turns out, uh, sort of in, in the spirit here of, in, is it Ingridopedia, the, the show that did our summer fill at this time slot on mm. Triple um, R, but they would investigate a particular food. Um, so, in, so I thought, oh, well, what is this stuff? I've actually seen it growing. It's the cacao plant, which grows in these pods, which are about the size of a very, very big lemon. And inside is all the cocoa beans, which at that stage are white and covered in a sticky goo which is slimy and sweet, uh, which then gets fermented. And the whole plant is the cacao plant, uh, but when you roast it, it, you can call it and grind it up, you can call it cocoa. But it seems like there's actually no formal distinction between cacao, which has a kind of like health food, um, superfood kind of vibe going for it right now, and cocoa. Mm. Yeah, although some people would say when it's sold in the raw form you call it cacao but i don't think the food manufacturers follow their their, (laughs) those people's advice so they just use the terms interchangeably but in my research i also noticed that um there was a website uh, sorry a um a news story that came out last week on a website called net shark kids are now sniffing the main ingredient in chocolate as a party drug what? Young people these days are getting high off the beloved ingredient found in chocolate, cacao. Cacao. <laughs> when snorted in its powder form, cacao reportedly provides a rush of brain-boosting energy. It's an increasingly popular substitute for, ele- for alcohol in illegal party drugs such as molly and ecstasy at dance parties in Western Europe. 
Uh, <laughs> and they mentioned very helpfully that it can be consumed in beverage, powder, and pill form. So we have both just consumed it in a beverage form. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why I'm feeling less. I Ill. feel a little euph- euphoric and so a little. So we sniff some just like. General, yeah, well, I brought some in from home, some raw cacao. So if you're up for it, I'm totally going to sniff it. All right, go I'm for doing, it. Doing okay. lines of cacao here. When you, I guess when you think about it, it goes in through all the Do you need a nostrils. credit card? Jesus goes straight in with a I'm pinch. I'm just going off my hand right now. Oh, this, is, this, is, this is original radio. This has not been done. Did it go up my nose? Did it get up there? I don't know. <laughs> Did you feel <laughs> it? I'd imagine you'd, you'd right, be I'm sneezing. That's some hell, Jed. I think it's up my left nostril. Jed, how? <laughs> I don't think there's any way we're talking Jed into this. I feel definitely brain-boosted right so, now. All right, Someone's got to be able to ring you right, I'm going to put it on my finger. I think it's going to be easier. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is something. Oh, that went... Yeah. Down the back of the throat. Well, on that note, <laughs> expect more fine radio from us when we're back. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of urban hillbilly radio. Greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, free triple R. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R. Tonight, our guest is Robert Pekin. Robert is a former fourth-generation dairy farmer who, like tens of thousands of his small and medium-scale colleagues, lost the family farm in the 1990s as a casualty of the deregulation of the Australian dairy industry. And just like it is for so many dairy farmers in the current dairy crisis, this was a personally pretty traumatic time for Robert. Uh, His path to redemption and healing led him to the discovery and practice of community-supported agriculture, and he established and now runs, along with his partner, Emma Kate Rose, a social enterprise, Food Connect in Brisbane, which since 2005 has been on a mission to create a fairer food system for both farmers and eaters. Eaters, Joining us on the phone from Brisbane, welcome to GTA, Robert Pekin. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Ted. Great to um, jet it is just. <laughs> um, oh, jet. <laughs> um, it's all right. Uh, now you're you're a former dairy farmer, Robert, and it, as we said, it wasn't by personal choice that you left the farm back in the nineties. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the story? Yeah, sure. Um, um, uh, pretty similar, but not as not as hardly done by. Uh, as the recent uh, Murray Goldman episode, but um, no, I'd um, uh, uh, come back to the farm after um, um, a couple of years away as the oldest of nine children, and um, uh, after a couple of years of share farming um, with uh, with Dad, decided to buy the farm. And um, not long after, I'd bought the farm and put uh, a hell of a lot of uh, uh, money into the, into that um, investment. Um, uh, the milk price dropped. Um, by 20%, so two months, basically two months after I bought the farm and uh, had all my budgets and estimations, the milk price dropped by 20% basically immediately. Um, and then the following year, um, there was a 10% drop, and the following year after that, there was a 3% drop. And um, I hung on for as long as I could, but in the end, I was um, uh, um, uh, medically insane and um, financially had uh, had absolutely no hope and uh, physically was a bit of a wreck because I, I milked 310 cows in a in a tennis. I'd um, double up herringbone dairy, 
which was um, in those times, uh, this is the um, mid-90s, mid-1990s, uh, uh, rotaries were coming into play. Um, 300 cows was a, was a bloody big herd to milk in a herringbone dairy. Most people who were milking any more than 300 would have been um, looking at a rotary, and um, it was the it was the it was the uh, um, the days of um, big dairy. Um, get out if you're smaller than that, and uh, all the incentives were were um, were towards you if you were a big big dairy farmer. And it was also in that period too where the last of the sort of I suppose the de- demutualisation of those cooperatives were taking place. I was with Bonlac at the time, which hadn't been bought by uh, Fonterra um, at that point in time, but the uh, supermarkets had um, unleashed their um, their uh, power on the market, and uh, we were. Um, we weren't quite deregulated, but it was um, well on the way, and uh, and there was a lot of um, a lot of uh, sort of manoeuvrings, and I suppose um, industry support for such a move. There was a lot of excitement in the year that this deregulation was going to be a great thing. So uh, I was caught up in all that, and um, yes, um, uh, ended up uh, a, a, uh, you know a pretty big casualty from it. Hi, uh, hi, Robert. Can you just give us an overview of what has gone down with milk pricing this time for farmers over the last few weeks? Yeah, so, well, as much as I know, um, it looked like uh, for um, uh, right up until... So you know, I'll give you a bit of an underpinning of how the deer industry works. There's, um, uh, your, there's, there's an opening price that's set, and that's generally around about, you know, 75 80% lower than what the... Um, what the company thinks the milk price will end up at. And then um, generally, and that's in obviously in June, uh, or ju- at the end of June, so the start of July, the milk price is set. And, uh, um, and then in October, there'll be what they call a step up. And then uh, generally, uh, or it might happen somewhere around just before Christmas, there's, there's another step up, uh, what they call a step up, where they think everything's going really well. And then there's another step up generally in um, April, and then you'll get paid um, uh, your uh, final milk price, whatever it ends up at. It might end up higher or, or what they predicted it to be um, in um, July, August or September or something like that. So they generally uh, back pay you for, un- for, for underpaying you earlier through the right, year. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're making sure the farmers still hold all the risk and uh, they don't. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of ensuring themselves that um, if, some, if things go um, uh, uh, northbound, uh, then or southbound, I mean, uh, then the, the dairy, the, the company can um, can uh, protect themselves a little bit. Um, in this case, uh, uh, by well, just recently, so a couple of months ago, so um, uh, so farmers are three quarters through their financial year. The um, not only did they announce a, uh, um, a, a radical cut in the milk price, but they also demanded back payment for the money that the farmers had already been be, been paid for the previous eighteen months. So they want to get back paid for all of that. So that's that's why I was saying it was it's worse than what I copped. It was it's uh, yeah, I mean it, you know it's just a, a ludicrous set of circumstances where um, the disconnection of the board, uh, the failure to. Um, to alert, apparently, you know, a lot of people could see that the milk market, global milk market, was oversupplied, and there were um, real issues happening around the place. But um, the uh, the powers that be within Murray Goulburn um, had had, you know, just thought that they would, um, you know, ride through it. And uh, uh, but in the end, uh, this decision, which Mark made, which um, you know, as you as, as we'll explore later on, is a. Uh, is a is a you know a, a symbol of um, the systemic breakdown in the whole of the food system. Robert, um, 
I've been following this a bit, and it's not super clear to me. Is it the the <laughs> two big supermarket chains, or is it the two big uh, dairy um, buyers that are the the culprits, or, or or is it a bit of both? Um, no, it, well, it's a bit both. Uh, as I said before, it's a, it's a system-wide collapse. This is, this is not just the dairy industry. This is the whole food system. Um, <clears throat> there's winners and losers, um, but there's never any consistency and there's never any um, um, high-level look at the complete food system. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, when you talk about systemic breakdown, you talk about a disconnection between the people who are running these mega-businesses mega um, and uh, are making all sorts of bets where there's where they share absolutely none of the risk and they're so uh, divorced from a dairy farmer's lot uh, where, the, where they earn pretty big salaries that they're all, all they're interested in is keeping their hold of their salaries and uh, and whatever um, whatever relationships and games that they play at that corporate level um, then you've got the global the global food system which is totally uh, you know open to the vagaries of the market um, uh, which further alienates the farmer from all of these risks. He's, you know, his food has been um, sent all over the world and in some cases sent back. Um, you know, we send as much butter to New Zealand as New Zealand sends butter back to us. Uh, you know, these things are just uh, um, are so stupid that, um, you know, it beggars belief that we're, you know, we're, we're sort of narrowing the conversation down to, you know, who's at fault and what's at fault and, and what's going on. Sure, there is some CEOs and sure there's some boards and, and sure there's some people within the industry, um, you know, the, the Australian dairy industry and at the, um, the UDV level, the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria level, who, who, um, who need to, you know, um, you know, be grabbed by the neck and given a good shake. Um, because of the personal damage is just extraordinary. But the real issue is systemic food system breakdown where we have got, um, you know, a pressure. Uh, and this comes from the government, this comes from CSIRO, this comes from all of the <clears throat> um, uh, people who are pushing for let's let's up production, you know, and, and in, in Queensland I can say, you know, uh, the Queensland Department of Agriculture have been pushing this agenda, let's triple the exports um and that's their sort of theory that's their that's their one and only solution to um, putting money in farmers pockets um and of course you know uh we've we've got enough food to feed 12 billion people on the planet there's only seven and a bit billion of us we'll, po we'll peak out at about nine and a half billion maybe maybe 10 billion but that's all up to how we educate women and um and uh, going to the um the uh, developing countries and really, you know, support them with local um, regional food systems. But when you've got this global food system or you've got the sort of the Western countries pushing for productivity agendas where really um, there's so much waste in the food system and the vagaries of the market put the farmer at the biggest risk mm. and the corporation who's controlling the food at the greatest chance of making profit, um, then, you know, this is where these issues really come from. So, so we've got a situation, Robert, where, as you mentioned, CEO of Murray Goulburn on $3 million a year, um, farmers being told that they have to back pay on average $120,000. Uh, and it seems that there's a, there's a duopoly there in the, um, with the major milk wholesalers and milk buyers, and at the same time there's a supermarket duopoly, and both of them with a disconnect uh, to the farmers' needs and the vagaries of climate and weather, of course, affect 
the farmers and then they end up in a situation where the price drops uh, because of also the vagaries of the global market and China um, reducing its consumption of milk. And if you're a farmer in this situation and like yourself, imagine, you know, being on the farm for four generations or longer, uh, you kind of got a situation there whether you try and produce more, which then just pushes the price down for everybody or like yourself you have the tough decision to leave the farm and i understand that for you it was um an extremely emotional one how do you think farmers are feeling at the moment and and coping psychologically Oh, it, it, this this would be um, this would be a tough moment, uh, you know. Um, they've already been doing it tough for many years. You know, there's, there's you know brief periods where the milk price is all right and they breathe a bit, but uh, they're, they're continually under pressure. And as you said, you know, farmers are um, are, are bearing the weight of this, um, and and because farmers are work so hard or they they work so hard, they they don't have access. Uh, or the time to actually analyse all this information and take on board what I could eventually take on board after I lost the farm. And you know, it, you know, when I um, when I drove down the road, I, I battled for about six months against the bank. The bank come and you know sent me a letter and said, "Listen, 25% of uh, farmers in your position um, uh, go out, go out the back door, and uh, for that reason, we're going to um, basically." Um, you know, take the farm off you, um, and I fought them for six months. Um, you know, you know, in the in the typical fashion of uh, I'll prove to you that I'm part of the twenty five percent, and uh, you know you're going to have to you're going to have to do better than a letter to get me off this bloody place. You know, uh, it had uh, I'd renamed the farm from um, um, Hillview to Bumbarabunjil after the uh, the Kalajan, the Aboriginal people who exist in the area before me. I had a lot of attachment and um, dreams for that place um it was on two volcanoes one was forty thousand years old and the other one was 1.2 million years old and so um you know i was pretty pretty determined to you know to dig my heels in and do as much as i could but in the end i was mentally um you know i had i went down i you know i probably in that six or seven months i i uh, thought of every way you could commit suicide um and in the end uh, decided to go down the road i never owned a gun which is probably the greatest thing um, uh, that uh, ever happened to me. I just every other farm owned guns. We all owned twenty twos, or they all owned twenty twos and shotguns. And, and my father did the same, but I never did, um, which is probably the, the greatest thing that ever has happened to me. And I went down the road to borrow um, the neighbour's gun, and halfway down, I just uh, uh, realised that, um, that just something happened. I just turned around, and in the middle of the night, walked across the paddock. Um, lay on the grass it was a pretty cold night wet grass and looked up and and uh, suddenly you know the stars said to me listen you know this is uh, you know you can't sacrifice your own life um you know uh, uh, you know there's, there's so many people who are going to be pretty you know sad about that and you can't do that to them so um i picked myself up and um uh you know then uh, walked into the solicitor and said right i'm 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 done. I'm sick. I'm over fighting, and uh, but this is this is you know this is massive emotional time. You know if you've got families, um, you've got to pay back this money. Uh, you you you're struggling to understand how could this how could this be happening to you? You know all of those. You really internalise this and you blame yourself. And you know sure you you get angry at the, at the um, you know in this case there's there's a lot of anger you can throw at. Got Murray Goulburn and the supermarkets, um, and it, and it's probably a, a great place to go. Um, 
I'm surprised no one's gone into any of those um, corporations uh, <laughs> or a supermarket with well, I'm a glad, shotgun. And <laughs> Robert, that <laughs> and you yourself are taking a more... I guess you could say proactive, positive approach, and I'm really glad that you are still with us, mate. Um, And we will talk about what you are doing uh, with Food Connect in Brisbane when we come back. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. You're on Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R. We have on the phone tonight Robert Pekin, who is the CIEIO of Food Connect, a social enterprise uh, fighting for f- and creating fairer food systems. And Robert's been telling us a little bit about his history as a dairy farmer um, and the, the psychological trauma caused by having to give up the farm back in the 90s. Uh, after that point, Robert, I think you spent a bit of time in the... Uh, wilderness psychologically and uh, maybe even literally Uh, (laughs) about 10 years later you founded food connect so can you tell us a little bit about what what food connect is yeah so it um yeah as i was talking i got a bit of time to um uh to look at uh marble models out there and i i um the first model that really tickled my um, fancy was uh, the community supported agriculture concept which really hadn't taken off this is the uh, the late 90s there had been a few attempts in um, uh, around the place but uh, um, when as you said I, 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 I uh, my uncle he sent me to, Tasm- uh, to Tasmania to um, get away from the, the banks and uh, other people who were chasing me for money because I, I had $90,000 worth of debt and no farm no, no home no nothing um, just a couple of old youths and um, uh, and down there, I found out about a CSA and visited the CSA. And uh, um, after about a week, or on the first very first Friday, a whole bunch of people turned up to um, to harvest um, all the produce for all, all the all the subscribers that week. And uh, I was um, literally um, spitting uh, the the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Uh, I couldn't believe that city folk really wanted to be a part of. A farm like this and volunteer their volunteer their time and um, even though I'd heard about the model and read a bit about it and um, I suspect some uh, of our listeners might not be familiar with uh, oh, what it means. Yes. Yeah, well, it's um, the term CSA. It means either community shared agricultural, community supported agriculture, um, and uh, it's basically a risk sharing model where consumers um, commit themselves to uh, uh, in the traditional model to um, a farm or to a farmer's produce. Um, and the uh, the farmer uh, takes responsibility for um, you know whether it's weekly with um, fruit and veg or um, you know every six weeks with uh, meat or whatever takes the responsibility for growing the very best of produce for that community of subscribers. So it's a you know it's a shared um, uh, I suppose relationship where uh, consum- consumers get the opportunity to become participants in the food chain and building a new food system and having responsibility and, and knowing where their food comes from. And um, and uh, and obviously assisting the farmer with with whatever skills that they have. You know, city people have all sorts of skills, whether it's economic skills, accounting skills, uh, marketing skills, uh, people management skills. Whereas farmers, you know, they they just want to grow bloody good food. Most farmers do. Um, there are the odd farmers who have really good uh, communication skills or or whatever, um, and and they um, they find CSA really attractive. But uh, as we found, as I found out through my research. 
and uh, setting up, I set up uh, nine CSAs in those um, 10 years um, after I uh, had licked my wounds. And, uh, and there was a fundamental sort of um, model that, uh, you know, this was really for a few farmers and I really wanted to have an impact across. I wanted to give farmers, every farmer in Australia, this experience, this, this direct connection um, to, uh, to the people who, who drank or ate um, their, the produce that they grew and and that um, people in the city or, or, or eaters you know, had had the opportunity to know where their food come from and participate in building a brand new food system. Um, so that's that's basically the um, what the model um, means and, and and how it how it works, I suppose, practically. Um, so when I arrived in Brisbane, um, there was already a little book started up here by Friends of the Earth called uh, Towards a Few. Towards the community supported agriculture that had just been launched, and they didn't have much success in um, um, in getting anyone to sort of come on board and, and and set up a CSA. And then they heard I was in town and come and approached me and said, "Could I get involved?" And um, and through Fins of the Earth, like I'd never really uh, mixed much with um, greenies and environmentalists and uh, particularly activists like uh, those of Friends of the Earth. And um, that's the, I suppose started my journey into understanding and, and connecting environmentalists with, you know, food and, and uh, how important that was to their campaigns, uh, which, you know, up until then, uh, most hadn't really sort of, you know, thought about uh, where their food comes from. I mean, obviously, we're, we're vegans or vegetarians, but they hadn't really thought much more about the systemic issues in the food system. So um, it was just fortuitous that uh, a couple of events happened and uh, um, uh, uh, about and all, in, during all those years that I was setting up CSAs, I'd come across, you know, 30 to 1 farmers would be saying, listen, that model sounds great, but it's not for me. I only grow five or six things or two things or, you know, whatever. You can find, you know, all the other farmers to grow all this other stuff then that'd be fantastic and, and eventually it dawned on me that this was the model mm-hmm. that what these farmers were actually telling me was um you know was exactly what i wanted to happen that, that that there was a way where we could facilitate a collaboration between farmers a lot of farmers together where where the fisc, where the risks were further um uh um um, eliminated and a lot more subscribers could participate in this because all those farmers could specialize in you know five or ten um, um, uh, products and over time we could get them diversify even more and explore you know um, a whole bunch of other things that are that are in that are in the food connect model or in the food connect ideal um, and and obviously during that time this is the thing that farmers don't get a chance to do you know I read Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. I read um, all the whole heap of Steiner's books around associative economies and associative renewal. I read <coughs> um, uh, just just so many great books that become permaculture. I got right into the whole permaculture thing. Um, and actually, the uh, the 12 principles and the three ethics of permaculture are embedded into our strategic planning. So, you know, there's um, there was a lot of reading and soaking up of information that as a farmer, you don't have the time to access, which is a real, you know, which is something that I, um, you know, we now do. We give farmers a lot of access to information. We put on events. Um, we're, we're sending them stuff all the time that make them think deeply about their farm. Um, and it comes through the idea that food is, is a basic human right. It, it's not a commodity. Um, and so that's our central sort of, I suppose, um, focus that we take um, when we're in conversations with farmers and when we're in conversations with um, city folk. Who, who, who want to be engaged in this process is that fundamentally we view food as a basic human right. 
Mm. Um, and there has to be everyone involved in doing work in that, whether it's the truck driver who delivers the produce or the forklift driver who takes you know a pallet off the back of a off a truck and puts it onto one of our vans. Um, they all have to be um, fairly re- rewarded, and, and even right into the hospitality industry. We're doing research in the hospitality industry now around. The systemic issues that the farmers are facing is also in the hospitality industry. You know, we have drug use, we have uh, chefs who work way too hard, driven way too hard, and you have hospitality staff who are treated pretty unfairly. And they're just micro... um, uh, um, uh, They're just the the micro of the macro problems that are inherent, that are right throughout the whole food system. So uh, so it's it's right across the board, you know, even to all the diabetes and all the health problems we have out there in the community today are all representations of uh, a food system that's, um, you know, <laughs> not going very well. well. I noticed on facts on your website, actually, that one, that uh, your your customers on average eat a lot more fruit and vegetables than the Australian average. And um, also very relevant to our discussion tonight that 40% of the retail dollar ends up going into the farmer's pockets as opposed to an industry average of 10%. And one thing that um, struck me just then is that there's there's actually a real parallel between Triple R, community, very diverse local radio, and versus the the sort of uh, corporate conglomerates that are the alternatives and the rich benefits you have. So I think... um, Triple R listeners would be, for yeah. those that aren't already involved in, have access to something like f- or know about things like Food Connect here in Melbourne, are there things yeah. that you can tell us about that yeah, well, our listeners... Series, series, yeah, Series yep. Fair Food, obviously, um, uh, or Fair Food um, is, is a sister um, organisation. They, they use our software and um, we, um, you know, we, we're great mates with them. And, there's, and, and the great thing is that is happening over the last... Ten years has been a, um, a phenomenal um, increase in people uh, wanting to get you know closer to their food and understanding all those health impacts and uh, and and you know now seeing it sexy you know we're seeing a lot of young farmers starting to get into this space now because with technology um, we started to connect before Facebook and all those social media but now there's just so many opportunities where you can reach out and connect with people um, and uh, you know. Uh, have that have that uh, um, have that transparency and that pricing uh, transparency or those conversations around relationships and transactions that that um, put everyone on an even footing um, because they can see the impacts and you know the impacts of paying a farmer um, forty cents as you know um, you were talking about that um, the the model here one of the the other things that I really thought deeply about when I lost the farm as I explored the the, um, the demutualisation and the corporatisation and eventually takeover of our cooperatives and, and the same thing with the dairy industry, you know, that that, uh, that sort of um, political manoeuvring that basically con- convinced every single farmer that deregulation was going to be a bloody great thing, um, is uh, I thought about governance. You know, what, what do we need to have in, in this company that I'm building that, that protects those farmers' rights from this ever happening again. Because I'm a human, I'm, I'm fallible. And uh, Robert, I'm afraid we're going to have to um, wrap it up. Do you want to <laughs> finish up your thought yeah. and tell us yeah. where we um, people can find out more about your 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 work? Well, um, you can just look on the, either the Food Connect Foundation's website um, uh, or on Food Connect Brisbane's website or on our Facebook pages. 
Um, or even in, um, you can even find our work in uh, um, series, uh, series fair food uh, uh, up in Sydney with Ubi. Ubi, uh, out of our own backyards, is a model from New Zealand across Australia that's, that's doing, that has this sort of enterprise. But I, I think, you know, uh, you don't have to look far these days to find a place where you can connect direct, directly with a farmer. Um, and, and it's not just about purchasing either, um, Adam. It's, it's, it's about how can I actually get out there? This, this is an opportunity um, because the food... Robert, I'm so food. sorry. We're going to have to wrap it up. Um, but thank you so much okay. for being on Greeting the Apocalypse thanks, tonight. Thanks, Robert. You've been a, um, and thanks particularly for sharing your personal story, which um, really brings home the importance of it. We're wrapping up another week of Greening the Apocalypse this week. Sands, bushy... Sadly. Uh, what are you pointing at, Jed? Uh, just uh, the mention of the uh, number. Oh, good for, point, yeah. Yep. Ro- Robert earlier um, talked about his own personal challenges that almost led him to take his own life. And uh, we should mention the lifeline number if you've ever had any or are having any thoughts along those lines. It is 131114. Kate Dundas. We'll be seeing you. you oh, we won't be seeing you next week, but do you know what's, yes, who we will be talking to? Yes, next week for Steve Keane. Uh, he's a professor from Kingston University and he will be discussing negative interest rates and deflation. And Jed, thanks for twiddling the knobs once again. My pleasure. Keep pumping that iron, Bushy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.